Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Neil Rewind podcast on war and violence. My name is Anne Vermaudik and in this episode Thijs Bouwknecht and I speak with Professor Tatjana Tunsmeyer. We speak um, about this source edition she works on with a team of researchers and it's named Fighting Hunger, Dealing with Shortages, Everyday Life under Occupation in World War II Europe. This edited collection of primary sources is actually the first work that gives insight into the experiences of hunger and food scarcity within the context of the ubiquity of violence from both a regional as well as a transnational perspective. What kind of sources did she and her team use? What did German exploitation mean for civilians and how did it impact their daily lives? And what effects their German occupation have on gender orders in occupied societies. So, um, Tatjana, welcome on uh, our podcast, uh, Neot Rewind. We're still homebound, although Anne and I are in the same room, but we're talking to you via Zoom connection. And where are you at the moment? I'm at the moment in Berlin, where I'm based. Um, and so we are talking, I guess, via from Berlin to Amsterdam. <laughs> We're not so far away from each other. Perhaps you can introduce yourself, um, well, basically to me and, and, and also the audience. Yes, thank you. My name is Tatjana Tönsmeyer. I'm a historian. Uh, I'm a specialist on World War II and what I've been researching for the last, I would say, at least about 10 years is occupation, situations of occupation during World War II. And I've done so in an international project with colleagues from all over Europe. And if I'm not doing this project, I'm a professor for modern history at the University of Wuppertal. Wonderful, wonderful. And um, we're, we're, we're going to talk much more extensively about uh, the new book, um, uh, Fighting Hunger, Dealing with Shortage. Um, is the short title. Um, can, you, can you just, in a couple of sentences, perhaps, summarize what is the main purpose and, and perhaps the argument of, um, of this work. Why, why, why do we have it? And, uh, and perhaps you can also talk a little bit about why now. What's the purpose? What's the aim of the book? I think for me, um, the most important uh, point is this is a book with a European perspective. I mean, uh, as you are well aware, for the Netherlands, for other countries as well, of course there are books on France during the occupation, the Netherlands during the occupation, Ukraine during the occupation, and so on. But we thought that um, occupation is something that European societies shared as experiences. And though occupation, of course, has um, many features, and of course, these features, let's say, locally distinct, there are some things that can be understood as similar. Usually, we tend to focus on the level of violence, um, and this is very reasonable, but there are similarities aside from experiencing violence. And among these similarities is that occupation usually went along with really hardships regarding the everyday life. Um, it went along with hardships in housing, I think, not that many people are aware that housing markets broke down virtually all over occupied Europe. Yeah, so there was a housing crisis for people all around. 
these books are all about supply issues and supply was a difficult thing to achieve in nearly all the occupied countries. Okay, Denmark is a special case, but aside from Denmark, usually the supply was not that good and partly it was uh, disastrous in, in, in some countries. So occupation went along with several features regarding housing, regarding supply, regarding work, regarding destroyed infrastructure, public transport and so on. And these are all topics that partly have been dealt with within a national perspective but never in a European. And this European perspective, I would say, is what is special about our two books, is special about the collection of sources printed in these books. Um, and I think if you are aware of the fact that all of occupied Europe, this is 200 and about 30 million people who lived under occupation, and these hardships were not the same, but it impacted the life of really a great number of people and it did so in many countries and this not sameness but similarities are things that we try to highlight and that's why we got into this work <laughs> that's Thank wonderful you. and because you said you're an historian the book is um, historical it's um, it's about this this phenomenon um, in the past I was just wondering if we look at the present what is what is a, what is a big lesson that we can sort of distill from, from this work. For instance, if we look at uh, places like Afghanistan or, or Iraq. Yeah. Um, actually, um, when the war in Syria got really hard um, and the news were full of the fighting in Syria um, and it was reported um, how people went hungry, how people within the bombarded towns had nothing to eat, the uh, transports uh, with footstep didn't get through to them and people tried to cook dogs and uh, looked for all kind of wild greens to eat and so on. And I thought, okay, this is inflicting hunger has been a weapon during World War II occupations, but is a weapon still in many countries today. So, and actually when I was writing part of the books, Syria was very high on the agenda in the news, but of course there are different uh, regions we could talk about as well. And I remember that I lectured uh, on hunger during occupation uh, and that the evening before I had seen the pictures uh, in the news and I was really thinking about what, what, what am I talking? Is it history or is it the present time? And if I may add another sentence, I mean, I do not know what's the situation in, in the Netherlands, but in Germany, given the pandemic, there is very much talk about is there a new normal uh, because of the pandemic? What kind of crisis is this? And I think this kind of people of course, it's, it's a very different situation from a pandemic to an occupied society. Um, but this not being able to live any longer under what we consider as normal. And I think aside from this topic of hunger and shortage, hunger does something with people. And what you consider as normal becomes something different. Yeah? And so this kind of um, what is normal um, and usually we take the normal for granted. 
I think we would have talked about what is normal two days before in a very different way from today, because we simply couldn't imagine that something that is not normal to us happens and afflicts our everyday lives. And I think this is the, so to speak, history of occupation. It breaks into the normal, and it's not over when the fighting is over. Yeah, and this, um, if I, I don't know whether this is a lesson. Maybe the experience of a pandemic helps to understand how unnormal occupation uh, was. So it's kind of understanding the past because of the present, but there are the other way around lessons from the past, hunger during World War II and hunger in crisis times today. History of occupation breaks into the normal and it's not over when the fighting is over. I, uh, I like how you explained this. Um, yeah, your answer really shows how occupation and change food supplies and policies gets into the ways people think and act and feel. And this, this context actually made me wonder about the differences in experiences over place regionally. Um, your book not only shines light on transnational experiences, but also enlightens us on differences between rural and urban areas, right? Yeah, thank you very much for that question, because this was something that we, when, I mean, maybe I should start by saying that the um, sources collected were collected by colleagues who went into the archives within these uh, several 20-something European countries. And uh, one of the first things was that we asked them not just to go to the main archive, national archives within the capitals, but uh, to go as well, at least in some regional or even town archives. So to have uh, the capital is always part of the picture, but smaller towns, rural towns should be there, or even villages if possible as well. And uh, I very well remember one meeting of the group, we call them uh, supervisors as country experts, um, and we very quickly came to realize that aside from these east-west distinction, there is this town or urban-rural di di uh, distinction. And you have some feature, so to speak, where the rural situation in Poland and France is much more similar than the situation within town or city and country within the same country or same occupied country. Yeah, so um, cities were earlier afflicted. Um, the situation became a dear run in the cities, generally speaking, earlier, quicker. Uh, and of course, rural populations uh, to some degree had more possibilities in coping, especially if they were really farmers. Um, but on the other hand side, you of course have people living in the countryside, not working in agriculture. And if you take France as an example, they simply got no ration cards because they were living in the countryside and the administration simply thought, okay, they will know how to provide for themselves. They do not need ration cards. Yeah, so this is, there is this rural-urban divide um, um, definitely, um, and there is a strong, let's say, antagonism between uh, cities and the countryside because many people in the city said, okay, the farmers are getting rich on us. Yeah, they are making a fortune. And this, this is a European feature. 
yeah, wherever you go, the idea that it is the farmers who are gaining uh, money and property because after some time it was not buying in the countryside but bartering. Yeah, so it's, um, and you even have um, regional histories like in parts of Belarus um, where rural populations for the first time got radios, sewing machines and other goods by way of barter, which they had never been able to to buy in Soviet times. Yeah, so um, there is this rural-urban divide, definitely. I, re I really like the distinction you already made between the national, the regional, and, and the local, and, and even also, I think, the, the cities. And one of the questions I think is sort of interesting to also discuss is um, to get a broader idea about the hunger situation in occupied Europe and, and the policies behind it, but also to discuss perhaps the effects of the occupation of the food situation in, in occupied countries. So we were thinking a little bit in the context of, and you spoke about it already, the weaponization of occupation, but also of course of food production and access to food. And I think an additional question to that was also why was food of such enormous importance for Nazi Germany? Um, for several reasons. Um, I think uh, w what it's good to bear in mind uh, for a start is that uh, Nazi Germany, uh, the Nazis, Nazi leaders of Germany, sorry, um, idea um, was that World War I was lost on the home front. Yeah, I'm not saying it was so, but it is their idea about uh, that World War I was not in, lost in the battlefield, but it was lost on the home front. Um, and a thing to be avoided in all cases was to have again a hungry German population. Yeah, if Germany was ever to wage a war again, then it should not have a hungry population. And this is one or even the main reason for um, exploiting all the occupied countries and sending foodstuff in uh, enormous uh, amounts home to Germany. Um, and the other thing is that uh, given the malnutrition in the early 1920s in Germany, um, especially Nazi leaders and scientists uh, um, were afraid that uh, the racial superiority, and I'm putting this, of course, in, in what is it, quotation marks, um, so that I'm not using the term, but just quoting it, um, is that people need, Germans need to be well nourished to be able to wage a war and to win the war. And from this, is, this is the main logic behind, or one of the main logic behind uh, exploitation, especially if it's um, concerning foodstuffs. Um, and uh, there are numerous, uh, I could quote numerous um, Nazi leaders, among them Göring, who had a meeting with German officials uh, stationed at some point in the East and said, I do not care if your people, he says, um, go hungry as long as no German goes hungry. And this is the, the, the logic behind, so it was very important um, for uh, the Nazi elite um, to have, um, let's say, satisfied German population um, and to take in foodstuff from all over Europe into Germany to be able to go on with the war. Thank you. 
Yeah, your your team have been looking for uh, hunger experiences and strategies to cope with hunger from a broad selection of materials uh, from a lot of different sorts of archives. Um, can you elaborate a bit on the kind of sources you and your team used and where you found them? You already mentioned the regional archives, um, but I think this is an important point, so perhaps you can say something more about it. Yes, thank you very much. I, if I may, I would kind of start a bit earlier uh, before getting to this uh, question, because what we have been doing in the edition is that we put up, let's say, lists of questions that we would like to have answered. Um, and we put up these this, this list for all the countries. Um, so before getting into an archive and before kind of choosing a document, um, the idea was that we have a set of questions that should be asked for all the occupied countries. And if it is not a, or if a researcher was not able to answer this question or finding sources to answer this question, then this was something that has to be explained. Yeah. So why is it that in a certain country this or that problem was no one, whereas it is in all the other countries? Yeah. So the first thing was that we um, put together a list of questions that should be, um, at least as far as possible, be answered. Uh, and from from this set of questions, it was important to. Um, go into the archives and find very different types of material. So among them, the um, idea is um, that we do not want to have only diaries or mostly diaries, but of course diaries, letters, ego documents are important, but to have administrative uh, documents as well, to have posters um, as well, to um, have as wide a variety of documents as possible, among them, for example, cookbooks or reviews on cookbooks. Yeah, um, I remember a review uh, from Norway which says, okay, this cookbook is quite nice, but um, I totally miss receipts on how to cook a rabbit. Um, and this is, is not a good thing in these days because everyone has a rabbit at home. Yeah. Um, so even kind of these uh, everyday life uh, um, documents that kind of cover aspects of everyday life. Yeah. So the the uh, variety of um, sources that we try to collect is quite wide. I was also wondering about the value of um, institutional sources because you use them as well, you and your team. Um, for example, judicial services, uh, they generated a large number of file, files and reports about what was happening on the black markets, uh, you wrote in your introduction. Can you tell us a bit about the, yeah, maybe about the value of the combination of these sources, so of the ego documents and of the administrative documents, so what do these sources tell us about an occupied society coping with hunger? I'm, my to try and um, describe one of the, the sources that I found very impressive to you. Um, and we have them especially from Belarus and from Ukraine as well. And these are market regulations. And we have several market regulations that say, okay, foodstuff to, to sell and buy is allowed in this or that town, only on that place at Wednesdays and 
Thursdays or given days of the week in given at a given time it is not allowed to buy or sell on the way on the roads to this marketplace to or back so it is immensely highly regulated yeah and it's very easy to to um trespass these regulations and it's quite difficult to obtain them and the other thing is that these regulations go on and describe what you are allowed to sell and then you really in many cases you get a list this is not allowed this is not allowed this is not allowed this is not allowed and it is quite interesting how many things you find will find in this list you have never heard of before and i remember one source from Russia. And the last sentence is, sentence is, and any other goods is free to be sold. And I was really wondering, what could that be? I had no idea. Um, and I think um, the, I know the question you asked was, what is it the, the kind of benefit of putting administrative and ego documents together? And with an administrative uh, document like this, this really describes within which context people were allowed um, to act and the, the limitation they got and this very, very strict regime. And this describes an everyday life setting um, for people who often were too hungry, um, too much bothered with their everyday life, too much bothered with a lot of hardships to write diaries. They didn't do this, but um, you get an impression how hard this life must have been simply to fulfill this regulation. Um, and um, then there are other ego documents partly saying that many guards, often law, local police forces were set up on the roads to these marketplaces um, so that if you bought something um, you were in danger that someone might take the goods you just bought or if you were a peasant transporting goods to this market you were in danger that someone could confiscate things yeah and then this is the the what say interconnection between diaries or um, <laughs> other kind of ego documents remembering it and at the same time administrative sources um, um, and um, yes I think it kind of um, shows how the situation was in several places. Yeah thanks. Um, we already touched upon the topic of gender uh, but this actually deserves some more attention since gender plays such a significant role in hunger. Um, how is it that um, how does gender relate to, to agency? So whose agency is it, in fact, that we were talking about? And who is hungry and who is trying to cope? Can you tell us something about that? Um, thank you. Um, this, I think, is a very important um, question because I think one has to bear in mind that not in all European countries under occupation, but in many, the men were absent. They were either fighting or they were, um, um, they were uh, in captivity um, or given a later point uh, in line, they were deported for labor-related reasons. So most of the occupied 
societies had a higher percentage of women, children and old people than the so-called normal or peacetime society. So the first thing that we are talking about is who had to cope with all these difficulties. It mostly were women. Yeah? Um, their men were absent. They had to work. Um, they had to feed their families. They had to do the queuing. Um, they had to do most of these things themselves. Um, what we see in the sources is that often women moved in with their sisters. Yeah, so one was working, one was doing the household. Um, we have sources um, where women try to move in with their mothers so that the mother, older mother could look for the grandchildren, things like that. So we uh, get certain kinds of, let's say, solidarity models, uh, women moving in together, trying to um, bear the hardships together. So it's, it's really these things that we are talking about is uh, a gendered um, issue. So when I've been talking about the question we sent our researchers with into the archives, one of the questions was always, tell us something about the reality of women. Yeah, it's not just people who had to cope, it's women, men, children and old people. The next thing, if we are talking about agency, um, these societies were societies were because the parents were the father at the front, the mother working, where children from very, very early onwards had to take over duties upon them. Um, and maybe the group that is most difficult to, to trace, so to speak, are old people. Yeah, because they were the ones who, if they had no family, could not cope alone, they could not queue, um, they had difficulties in going into the countryside for bartering, um, they were often anyway vulnerable because they were old or um, um, ill. So um, this um, history not only of women and children but as well of old people um, who were especially inflicted and who were especially afraid of being left alone, of having no one who cared, of dying earlier than they would have in peace times and so on. This is a history and it, that has not been told that much and it's quite difficult to find sources on this. Another important aspect um, is the relation between Jews and also Sinti and uh, Roma and non-Jews and non-Sinti and Roma on the other hand. Yeah. So these groups were suffering persecution and were on top of that hit by hardships posed on uh, everyone who had to live under occupation. So these groups had to organize their survival of hunger uh, or famine, perhaps under pressing conditions of occupation. Um, could you say something about this? What did you found on this, uh, on this specific aspect? Thank you for asking this question again. Um, I think when starting with the Jewish populations all over occupied Europe, I think um, this focus on everyday life shows that Jews are kind of doubly hit, I would say. They are hit, of course, um, by um, the German persecution um, within genocidal policies, but they are hit as well with all the other members of the occupied societies by the hardship of, of occupation itself. So this is a kind of 
it, occupation is, so to speak, the context for um, um, persecution, but is as well the con as well the context for trying to survive, and trying to survive, uh, and um, trying to find someone who is willing to help happens in the given situation of occupation. Um, and I think this has to be much more taken into account um, because um, if we take again the a very famous example of, of Anne Frank um, and she and her family and the other families hiding in this the special house they were in, it took quite a lot of people who went buying food on the black market because they could not um, feed them on their ration cards and marks and so on. So um, hiding, helping took place in the context of an occupied society, took place in the context of more in Eastern Europe and less in Western Europe of deadly persecution of those who were willing to help um, and within the hardships that were anyway part of the occupied everyday life. And I think this kind of, um, we often, we, I started by saying that an older historiography was either occupier or perpetrator-centered or victim-centered on the history of the Shoah. But if, I, if we write the history of survival or trying to survive, because not always the strategies of survival were successful, then it's a history that is, has to be contextualized within occupation and within the special situation that occupation was um, um, characterized by. If we were, or if you were, beyond Syria, perhaps, um, were to advise, let's let's say, our our future students or or other colleagues um, on researching, perhaps experiences of hunger in in the present, um, like in Yemen or or in Ethiopia, what would be your your main takeaway and advice for for those researchers? To embark on on such a, such a thing you've done, which which is enormous, as Anna said as well. I don't know whether I see myself in the position of advising, but my idea would be go and look for complexities. Yeah, think I think um, and this from my from my mind goes beyond World War Two or goes beyond the the issues of hunger and so on. I think historians are experts on complexities. Yeah. And this kind of try to get into the details, not for the details as themselves, um, but for trying to find a complex picture of the past. Um, and uh, f first, I think it's much more rewarding than the, the easy, his easy histories. Yeah, it's much more rewarding. It's much more interesting. Um, and I think it's kind of... Um, getting nearer to something that's gone. Thank you very much, Tatjana. It was great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. It in fact was fun to, to, to talk to you. Yeah, oh good. I think so too, isn't it?